Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words. Joining me once again, my co-host and creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hi, Christopher. This is Looking Good Today. Episode 5 is looking awfully fine. Mm -hmm. First of all, we have a chat between you and Pete Townsend. Oh, look at you, Mr. Special, getting to talk to everybody (laughs) and doing it on TV. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was. A, it's a pretty interesting interview. Yeah. We should remind people, by the way, if people don't know any of our bona fides, if we can call them that. Of course, Christopher was the longtime VJ, uh, one of the very first VJs on Much Music, and you did so much work between Much Music and City Limits, and you have, you've interviewed so many hundreds of people over the years. And I myself... I'm pretty much just the guy who looks after the interviews that are on CD and reel-to-reel and dat <laughs> here in the building. I'm not much of anything, but I've, oh. uh, I've, been, a part of a, I've been a part of a bunch of uh, interviews myself, and I've done a few myself. So it's, uh, this You're is a music a, lover. Why I am, and this is a real labor of love, what we're doing here, and that is uncovering some of the greatest interviews uh, that we've ever heard or been part of. And uh, like you say, the first one is going to be with Pete Townsend. We've also got a chat with one a person that doesn't get a lot of attention anymore, uh, Pat Benatar. Mm-hmm. But she's still around. She's still performing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and this is a great little chat uh, with her. It catches her at a very interesting sort of turning point in her career and life. That's right, because she's thinking of making some life changes at that point. Mm-hmm. So that is very interesting. Um, we've got one of the greatest songs of all time, a great story behind the hit. And this is from about 1978, I think. One of my favorite songs, again, a, a, not a song that people ever put on their top list of songs of all time, but, uh, but it's a real good one. We'll tell you more about that that in a few minutes cool. and then for a little bit of Canadian content we've got a chat with the guys from Triumph Great. Um, it's actually Mike Levine talking about a whole bunch of things and it's just there's some really great things in there and also a couple of quotes that I would love to play back with him uh, now and see if he really still believes some of the stuff that he said then because <laughs> I, ca- I oh you can't do that you I can't know. confront people with their past exactly yeah. exactly but anyway it's great stuff that's so, half uh, the fun of these things though yeah. is seeing you know the crazy stuff that people said back in the day for sure First, let's start with Pete Townsend. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1989, the Who did a 25th anniversary tour that brought them to Toronto. Now, my boss at much of the time said, I've got good news and bad news, Christopher. <laughs> You've got a one-on-one with Pete Townsend. Yay! The bad news? You're only allowed to ask him about his new solo project, The Iron Man. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> now, being the well-behaved interviewer that I was and am, I dutifully asked about Townsend's take on the children's classic story written by British poet Ted Hughes, the Iron Man. Mm-hmm. And um, I specifically asked about casting the vocalists for the project, because he had different singers for each character, a list that included uh, jazz great Nina Simone, blues man John Lee Hooker, and at least one unusual choice. And I wanted Lou Reed to be the Iron Man. And he agreed to do it, and... Uh... Uh, would have done it had had our schedules been a bit more elegant. I wrote uh, all of the Iron Man songs for him. That's why they've only ever got two chords. Uh, and limited range. <laughs> Unlimited range, yeah. Because that's the first thing he said to me. He said, Pete, you know, I only sing in D. That was, okay. I said, and, and uh, I think I, you know, I, I'll just stick to the two chords. He said, that would be nice. the casting of john lee hooker is sounds wonderfully inspired well it wasn't that inspired i mean i just uh, uh, john lee hooker is is my you know seminal influence he's the guy 
who you know taught me to stutter. He's the guy who uh, taught me to play the guitar that way. You know, he, he's the you know. And it's the first time I met him was when I worked on this record. But you know, first record that I ever heard that really actually chilled me to the marrow was a song he did called Devil's Jump which was recorded in 1948, I think. Extraordinary record. Heavy, heavy, heavy rock. You know, that's not R&B, it's not blues music. It was... And a guitar with a microphone hung inside, stuck into an amplifier that was distorting like hell. And I thought, that's it. You know, that's the poignancy of the blues. That's the... The, the the resolution of the blues, the emancipation of the blues, the the you know the loneliness of the blues, but it's also the anger that is going to be needed to get us through, you know, to get us out of this place. Oh my God, I love his Lou Reed imitation. Yeah, it's that pretty would funny. Be nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, now, mind you, uh, I was instructed to talk only about the Iron Man, but the second, the nanosecond the words, the who, escaped Townsend's lips, yeah. the door swung open, and I saw my chance. Sure, that's called, right in. that's called a wedge. As soon as you can fit the wedge into a conversation that you want to, the subject you really want to talk about, you're in. Go. Yeah. Well, I, and during the show, I'd seen the, the, the 25th anniversary show the night before the interview, which was good because they played that old blues classic by Bo Diddley called I'm a Man. And that got uh, Peter talking about the Who's repertoire from their very earliest days as a band. You know, when we first went on the stage at the Marquee, we, uh, did we have a record deal? We, we just about had a record deal. So we had one song in our repertoire that we wrote, but we played an hour. And we played Dance to Keep from Crying by Smokey Roberts and the Miracles. We played uh, Please, Please, Please by James Brown. We played uh, uh, Anytime You Want Me. We played Daddy Rolling Stone. We played uh, uh, Heat Wave. We played Leaving Here. We played a lot of Tamla stuff. And then the R&B side, we used to play a lot of the stuff that other bands in London used to play, like Smokestack Lightning and and uh, odd Chuck Berry songs and stuff. But that was our set, it was an R&B set. And we were a scary band playing that stuff. You know, we were these kind of like four spindly little white-faced little kids, you know, growling, I'm a man. And, and it was kind of weird, kind of distinction. And what was strange about hearing Roger sing I'm a man last night was is that he is a man, you know, now. You know, and so, and he seems to be pretty comfortable with it. So suddenly he was singing I'm a Man with real dignity instead of, instead of uh, you know, like the way Muddy Waters used to sing it or, or like the way that uh, uh, Bo Diddley used to sing it. Well, Daltrey really was his own interpreter, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Funny to think that this was their goodbye tour. Yes. <laughs> the long goodbye, I believe. <laughs> and they're still playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? You know, people mm-hmm. love the music, and as long as they have some enthusiasm to get up on stage and, and play it, then to me that's fair. However, I asked him, as you'll see, because <laughs> I think we include the question here in the quote, um, about what the show meant to him and to the audience and that sort of transaction between the two. I felt that it was like the last night's show was like a gift to the audience, and I'm wondering what you get back from the audience in a situation like that. Not very much. Seriously, not very much. And we get their money. And, 
and, and we hear we hear a lot of. Uh, I wish we got more back, but Stadium Rock is not very good for the performer. The, I don't think it's very good really for the for the uh, for the audience either, really. But it's like something that we're stuck with. It's a pity, really. I think. When the light, when, when, when we go on in daylight, in fact, I hate it because you can see the audience, you can see them all in there in their Who t-shirts kind of waiting, you know, what's going to happen now and confused and trying to find their seats and, you know, you know, surreptitiously getting out their joints and so on. Maybe it will be better now. And then when the lights go down and it becomes a little bit more like theatre, slowly but surely it starts to grow into something. It's nice to hear you say it's a gift to the audience because that's really, really what we want to do. I mean, we want to do that, but we also want to make ourselves happy as a gift to the audience because so much of the Who's performing career and recording career has been tortured, you know? And, uh, and I think there's a feeling that, you know, maybe that, maybe that our fans are kind of weird because they want to see this band suffer. And I think, you know, what's actually, what, what's these people suffer? You know, they want to see blood being spilt or whatever. I don't think that's really been what has motivated Who fans. I think what's motivated the serious Who fans is that they, they know the secret. They know that if you look below the surface, you know, if you go past those, you know, wild stage shows of, of, of the late 60s, early 70s, that uh, what you come to is a band that wrote silly little songs about, you know, I don't know what sex I am. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or, or, you know, I really want my mummy back now. You know, and that those things are what, you know, when you're a big tough adolescent, you know, and you're drinking maybe 10 Budweiser's a night, you know, and smoking four or five joints a week, and, and you know, and then a couple of years you're going to do the really serious stuff, and maybe beat somebody up last week, you know, and and uh, and you've been laid 15 times. In fact, you haven't been laid at all, but you know, you've been laid 15 times. Uh, what you're going through is you're, you're you're desperately trying to, you know, take this kid, you know, this child uh, into adulthood. You know, and you're trying to find out what you've got to leave behind and what you can carry on. And and, uh, and I think that's what the Who were really good at talking about. They were really good at making people in the audience laugh at themselves. You know, that thing about, you know, here we are, we make a really fierce expression. And uh, But people know underneath that, you know, we're, we're making this really fierce expression, but really we're complete wimps. You know, because the only thing that we ever beat up is hotel rooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That was both the best and worst thing I've ever heard. He was so <laughs> cynical at the beginning. Yeah. What do you get from the audience? Nothing. We get money, and it's awful, and we hate these big stadiums. And when the lights are on, we hate it even more. That's <laughs> awful. That is awful, yeah, Christopher. That's, uh, you should have gotten up and walked out right there. No, but, no. But then it gets good. Yeah. It, well, it's a classic rock star response, isn't it? Just this overt cynicism I, of the moment. I can't believe how much is in that clip that's what two three minutes long it's fantastic it's one of the best things i've ever heard well i love how after sort of trashing the relationship they have with the band he proceeds to talk about the quintessential who fan and he understands them mm -hmm. because that's who he was growing up right he was that scruffy little kid hanging out in the pool hall you know yeah and um he he talks about them dismissively, right at first, but affectionately. Yes, it's a funny turn that yeah. he takes in the midway through that. Yeah. And when it comes right down to it, all we are is wimps. <laughs> the only thing, <laughs> and we're he's destroying. talking about himself. Yes, yeah, for sure.
He says, yeah, we never trashed anything. Yeah. Well, except for hotel rooms. Yeah, exactly. And a few guitars. Yeah. Maybe some drums. That's unbelievable. That's a, that's a great clip, and it's one of the uh, prime examples of why we're doing this show, to, you know, to unveil uh, interviews. In, and, you know, this is the beauty of what we're doing, if I may say so, if I may shine <laughs> a golden light on both of us. Why not? But so many of these interviews saw the light of day once. Yeah, that's true. Perhaps twice. Perhaps if they were in a rotation on much, they would have seen them a few times. Maybe. And then that's it. And then yeah. maybe on a highlight reel, you might get five seconds of something at the year end. Yeah, a, sound, right? a true soundbite. I mean, and they're on to the next. I mean, we are that's in right. the on to the next business. That's right. And so the fact that we can dig these up, we can rewatch them, re-listen to them, find the best parts and play them for people. I am jazzed. I love this stuff so much. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by Alarm Force. Managing your home is a lot of work, but securing it doesn't have to be. Let the professionals at Alarm Force take home security off your to-do list. With Alarm Force, you can rely on professional installation, dependable products, and industry-leading customer service. They provide protection for burglary, fire, and flood with a suite of smart home products like door locks, lighting, and thermostat, all controlled from anywhere in the world with the Alarm Force mobile app. No charge for installation with packages starting from only $29.99. Call 1-800-267-2001 or learn more at alarmforest.com. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and here's my co-host, Tom Joker. Yay me. Yay, Christopher. Okay, so, so sorry. I know I sound I like... I got a- it over my trousers, man. <laughs> you know, what the... Okay, so what we've got now is a, um, is a chat with Triumph, okay? Oh, boy, what's the date stamp on this? early 80s, I believe, and it's a chat with Mike Levine. And do you know Mike? Do you know the guys oh, from yeah, Triumph Oh, yeah, they're great guys. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of history with those guys. To say the least. Isn't there? Okay. And so that's why this particular clip, this very first clip, is kind of funny and kind of sad. Okay. Because Mike Levine talks about one of the most unique things about the band and maybe its greatest strength. We've never had a fight amongst ourselves. That's amazing. We have never had what would be called a fight. We've had disagreements, Mm. but they sort themselves out. But we've never actually gone to war. And, uh, you know, we had had managers for a while. We went to war with them. Uh, uh, You know, we were always fighting with the record company, but we never fight with ourselves. And I think that's that's the key to just staying together uh the key to any kind of success we've had is just you're there all the time you know it's it's not like you're breaking up or you're changing members or you're doing any of that everything is consistent okay so did you get that they never had a fight well we know what happens eventually rick leaves and i think it has a lot to do with ownership of the songs and songwriting and and all that and there was a big kerfuffle between those guys after they split up to the point where it looked like they would never ever get back together again and of course they did they did a tour i think around 2008 where they were going to sweden and everywhere Mm. um but they did finally patch things up you know i don't know the personal stuff behind any Mm. of that story but Mm. it occurs to me having seen rick solo that he had so much other stuff going on musically that he would want to express and explore that a breakup would be inevitable. Oh, I see. Okay. So he really would have wanted to express himself more artistically and go off in different directions that would yeah. not have fit the, the band. Well, yeah, because the, you know, the idea of what Triumph is is pretty narrow. I mean, it was mm. great, mm. and people loved it, but 
he, he stepped out so dramatically from yeah. that. Another clip from this is where they talk about record companies. A record company hates us because we're not publicity hounds. Mm. You know, there's no one in the band like David Lee Roth who's willing to dress up in a gorilla suit and hang upside down from a trapeze, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just to get their picture in a magazine. It's just, uh, that's not our, uh, we, we don't subscribe to that philosophy. You're not playing the game. Yeah, that's true. We're not. <laughs> but, hey, you know, we, that's not the important thing in our minds. Mm. Um, the 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 ultimate success where everything is covered, you know, where you've got all the press in the world and everybody's playing your records and you have hit singles, and uh, you play big buildings and you're sold out everywhere, and 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 you 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 spend your life being a total vegetable. That's not what we want to do. Uh, what we want to do is uh, is is have things in the right place at the right time for us. Mm-hmm. Really, it's our career. Everybody else is sort of a leech grabbing a piece thereof. Mm-hmm. And if someone's living off you, then they're going to have to have to play by your rules. Just a little bit cynical. <laughs> by the way, um, for those of you that can't see us today, I should mention that Tom is now dressed in a three-headed dog suit and has chained himself to the door of the vault. Oh, is this another Harry Potter fluffy, the three-headed <laughs> dog remark? Okay. Well, no, it was know, the gorilla upside-down remark <laughs> that he made about David Lee Roth. Why? I see nothing wrong with that. Okay, so... <laughs> So anyway, we have uh, one more clip, and this is re- this to me is the most fascinating clip because basically Mike Levine does his projection of what the future is going to look like. Now, this is about 1980 or 81, years before the internet. This is a few years before CDs. Nobody quite knows what the record industry, the entertainment industry, the technology of the future is going to look like. Listen to what he says, and listen to how much he gets right. If you look at what's happening with video disc now, it's not happening, no. as far as the music is concerned, the music end of things. And uh, I don't think it will happen that way. But as far as the, you know, the home entertainment unit being totally changed around, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's going to be a whole different ballgame. Well, the flat screen on the wall is four years away, maybe. Yeah, and that's, and that's going to be... You'll be able to order your groceries, mm-hmm. uh, buy your your cars you'd be able to do anything with your little little punch button keyboard and uh and your in your tv yeah you'd be able to patch into anything anywhere in the world for any reason whatsoever which means uh will people still go to concerts mm-hmm. will they will will they still have jobs will they, they actually leave their house to go to or they work out of their house i don't think it's gonna really it may affect the form of the record industry in other words you may not see a 33 and a third rpm disc mm. or a 45 but You'll see some form of pre-recorded music that gets to be played back somehow. Yeah. And I think you'll still see people going to concerts. Oh, uh, I believe so, too. You know, I don't, I don't think that's going to change so much. I think the problem with the record industry is they don't keep time with, with time. Well said. Because, uh, look, look for these, they're all crying the blues because everybody's duplicating cassettes at home, duplicating yeah. records on a cassette. Um, that's only because the cassettes they make are such utter garbage. I mean, it's like anything. I would guess 50% of the cassettes I've ever bought or received in the mail have, have gone defective after three or four plays in one way that either the machine eats the tape or something happens. The eyes or, rub off. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, it, there's no percentage in anybody going out and buying it for eight ninety eight. I mean, it's the most ludicrous thing in the world. Anybody can go buy a, 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 the same quality cassette record companies use for a buck. And, uh, and, and sit at home and tape their albums if they want.
Okay. Wow. What did you think about what he said? His predictions. It's prescient. I, yeah. I'm I'm blown away actually. Now the uh, the interviewer was a guy named Larry Wilson, a great newsman, great interviewer. Uh, he said, um, uh, "Flat screen TVs are four years away, yeah. and they were a lot more than that. You know, they were a lot farther away. I think than than 1985, 86. Yeah, right? I think you're right. So so even you know even that was on the horizon, but it was still a long way away. And I, he got so much right. Yeah, I sure found did. that a great clip. I loved it. And he sneaks in the reference to live music and the fact that that will never go away mm-hmm. because there's nothing like performance. Mm-hmm. For sure. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. And that, of course, has hit me with your best shot. Pat Benatar, written by Eddie Schwartz, who mm-hmm. you know is a friend of yours. Yeah, is that he's, right? Eddie's a good pal. Okay, so let's talk, uh, let's talk about Pat Benatar. <laughs> okay, well, listen, Pat had a string of hits. <laughs> And, and made a whole bunch of songwriters really happy, <laughs> and their wives and yeah, their families. Exactly. It started with a song called In the Heat of the Night in 1980, and of course included songs like Hit Me With Your Best Shot, and later on We Belong, songs like that, and Love is a Battlefield, written by Holly Knight, who mm-hmm. was on a recent show of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm serious, we should get Eddie on to talk about this song, because there's a great story behind the writing of Hit For Me sure. With Your Best Shot. Um, she also had a string of Grammy Awards to go along with the platinum albums. And by the time of this interview, um, Benatar and her husband and musical partner, Neil Giraldo, were missing only one thing in their lives, and that is becoming parents. Yeah, well, if all goes well, and God willing, yeah, I hope so. We're going to try start trying this year. Well, what's that going to do to the Pat Benatar we've all come to know and love? <laughs> I don't know. It'll probably make her a little fat. That's about <laughs> it. <laughs> Somehow I can't see you as, you know, having this great big huge belly i know i don't think anybody can including myself <laughs> but it's something you're really looking forward to yeah it should be a great it's the it's the one thing that we're just kind of missing you know everything else has been so terrific for us and you know that's about the only thing you know that we're missing in our lives so we thought this would be a good time i'm not getting any younger you know so. <laughs> well i know what it's like to be in, in an intense musical partnership when you're also part of a couple and you're referring to alana miles and you of course mm-hmm. you guys were a couple up until about the time that she recorded that first album, or you guys recorded the first album? Yeah, I mean, we, through all of her sort of years of growth and development, becoming an artist, mm-hmm. we were a couple and we mm-hmm. lived together. And we actually split uh, during the time of making the record. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to tell you the absolute honest truth. Yeah. Um, we became better friends. And we just continued to work as if nothing had happened. Wow, that's great. And, yeah. you know, we do have... Funny you should say that. We have some audio right now of Alana. No, we do have some. some uh, we have a great interview with Alana from around that time period, and we're going to play it in an upcoming episode, and it's sensational. And she speaks, I hate to spoil the plot right now, but she really does speak very respectfully and very lovingly about you. Mm. And uh, and it's a great piece, but I can't wait to play that in an up- upcoming episode. Okay. But let's get back to Pat Benatar. Well, Pat talks about the challenges that you face in just such a relationship. It's a difficult thing. You know, it's, just, it's basically the, the biggest problem is the time factor that you're with each other 24 hours a day and every you know everything that you go through he goes through and vice versa so there's no um you know nobody to bounce stuff off of because you're both you know in the same situation but um i don't know it seemed that when we took the vacation and we took the time off and we had a lot of time to think about how to you know 
how to work it out and you know it just seems to be better now that we're married i guess it's it's just one less thing to worry about you know when mm-hmm. your relationship is stable everything else seems to fall into place so benatar was in the first wave of mtv stars an era when every move you made seemed to be captured on camera and maintaining your rock persona 24 7 could be challenging never mind how it might be affected by being a wife and a mother in this interview she was asked if those changes would affect her rock cred well, I hope not. I mean, because that's just, you know, one has nothing to do with the other. I mean, that's my private, personal life. And it really doesn't uh, have anything to do with my stage persona or my public life. I mean, that was one of the, the really good things that I, I learned over all these years is that you got to keep it separate. And, uh, you know, I mean, what, <clears throat> what I am to the public is one thing and what I am to my family and at home is another thing. And I really enjoy keeping it very separate from each other. So I really don't think it'll affect it that much. She's also talking in that in that clip about being an actress. So that would also affect people's uh, view of her as this tough rock chick, especially if she ends up, ends up with a role that is less than tough. Yeah, I think the, the, the sort of model for that in the time, and a lot of artists were being asked about being mm-hmm. actors because they were first being seen in music videos then, mm-hmm. whereas before we hadn't had that type of exposure to them, was, of course, Tina Turner in Mad Max. Right. Ideal role, mm-hmm. right? Killer role. Or even when she played um, the Acid Queen in Tommy. Right. But I don't think Pat ever got that chance. No, I don't think she did. And, and, and perhaps it was because she was afraid of what, uh, what might come of it. Who knows? Well, a lot of great things did happen for her. You know, the hit records, of course. But her career kicked in during an amazing time for women artists. And that, that's a time that featured people like Tina Turner, Chrissy Hine, Debbie Harry, Annie Lennox. And then here, people like Sarah McLaughlin and Sash Jordan. Strong personalities went along with big success. And Pat was asked about her don't mess with me attitude. Yeah, I mean, I, see, I'm not in the, in the situation anymore where I have to feel that. But, I mean, I still have the, you know, I'm just one of those people that if you're really going to put me in a corner, mm-hmm. I'm not going to stand there and go, you know, please don't do this. I'm probably going to, you know, scratch your eyes out. Or, nice or, gal. Know, come back and retaliate. I just... I mean, that's bas- I, I mean, I think it's a real ignorant way to be sometimes, but I don't think there's anything I can do about it. I just have that kind of fighting attitude, and I really don't like being pushed around or pressured into doing things I don't want to do and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? There we go, Pat Benatar. By the way, the uh, person doing that interview was uh, a woman uh, named Elaine McDonald, a uh, terrific broadcaster, and that was, I guess, from probably the... Uh, mid-80s. That would be my guess. Okay. So just in case we have any questions about that, that's who it was. I'm Christopher Ward, along with Tom Jokic, and this is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the interview archive. This time around, Christopher, the dive isn't that deep. We are going back only to 2004. So Kelly Clarkson is two years removed from winning American Idol, and she has yet to prove her real chart potential. Her success was still very much ahead of her. So this is from around that time. She's just releasing her second album, and uh, we started by asking her about songwriting. I don't really have, like, a, a message to my menace. I guess I just, like, I'll be sitting at dinner, and then I'll get an idea, and I'll start writing it on a napkin. <laughs> so, um, or I'll just come in my room, and I'll be like, I'm totally in the mood for writing, and I'll just sit down and write at my computer. Um, but I don't know. I, I'd write all different kinds of ways. It's, but it's basically journaling everywhere, I guess, just because it's how something has affected me or inspired me. Kelly also talked about something that was going to be a continuing theme in coming years, and that is being in control of her own career. You know, after the two and a half years of, of learning and, and following, you know, someone's lead, 
I've kind of just taken a bit more um, control um, of the reins, you know, as much as I can, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm not, I'm never, I'm never that girl that thinks like, you know, uh, my way is the best way. I always think two heads are better than one. And um, I don't know. I just, I take advice and I just kind of go with my gut feeling, and and that's what I do. So. And she told us the story about the breakout song since you've been gone. In a nutshell, it's um. It's about, a, you know, a relationship where someone, you know, one of us thought everything was going perfectly fine, and then all of a sudden, they're in love with someone else. So, you know, it's just like, oh, well, that's great. I'm just going to destroy your apartment, and that <laughs> I'll be on my way. <laughs> has that ever... That's, that's what the video is about, so... So, has that anything like that ever happened to you? Um, sadly, yes. That has happened to me. So, and it's not a cool thing, but you know what? It's, it's a good thing, because then, you know, that just means better is on the way for you, so... Oh, wow. Okay. So there you go. So there's uh, Kelly Clarkson talking about, you know, uh, getting exacting revenge in the song uh, Since You've Been Gone. And, you know, Kelly, she really got into it with Clive Davis in terms of guiding her own career. And Clive, I don't know if you ever read his... Yes. I don't know if you ever read his book, The Soundtrack of My Life, but it is excellent. And he really talks about the importance of having hit singles. And it doesn't matter who you are or who you think you are. You need a hit single to be in Clyde's orbit, to be in Clyde's, you know, solar system. And he works so hard with the artists like Santana, like Whitney Houston, like Barry Manilow, and like Kelly Clarkson to make sure they have hits to move those units. And Cl- and and mm. Clive Clive has a great ear for pop songs. And it's funny because he is well up there in years now, and he still does. But boy, he wields a lot of power, and Kelly did not like that. I love how feisty she is. And, and I love that she's kind of spoken her truth to power. I mean, um, she's had, you know, public battles with with Dr. Luke and with Clive and and um you know th- these are like hugely powerful men in an industry that um you know even though you might look at the charts and say well women have their place when you get behind the scenes it's still a male dominated industry mm-hmm. and um I I love that she has stood up for what she believes in and you know one of the things about it is I think that it just it it kind of all eventually comes out in the wash and and in other words all the proof is in the length of her career. And, I, you know, I wasn't sure how I felt about Kelly. Like, I mean, I like the pop songs. I like Since You've Been Gone. I like Breakaway. I like all those early hits. And then I, I felt like she was starting to get a little bit too serious about herself. But then I saw her live. And, in fact, I saw her live just a few weeks ago. And she only did two songs because it was, a, it was a, like a charitable event. And she blew the ceiling off the place. And it was, the, it was like a stadium with 17,000 people. And it was fantastic. And mm. she really captured it. Her, her, her performance was very passionate. It was very, very powerful and it was very emotional. And of course, her voice was incredible. She hit every single note and she invented a few new notes and that's not an insult. She was incredible <laughs> live. And so I think she's kind of proven herself yeah. with her live audience. I also think uh, with her live performances and I also think she's done a lot to advance the cause of of a woman who doesn't fit the ter- the typical stereotype of a skinny, scrawny rock star. And she's fought against that too. Only a few weeks ago she said, you know, when I was skinny, I was miserable and she couldn't have that in her life. So there's so much to cheer uh, Kelly Clarkson about, and it's so great to hear that interview going back all those years to 2004. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and here's my co-host, Tom Jokic. First of all, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Kenny Loggins? What, what are, do you like him as an artist? You know, he's a fantastic singer, and mm-hmm. I was a big fan of Loggins and Messina. To right. me, the solo work, hit and miss. 
Oh, really? I found his solo work really creative, very inventive, sounded great on the radio, but he lost me at Footloose, right? That okay. kind of stuff, when it became really poppy and really basic, I, I just didn't like it as much. So that's why I've chosen this song, and it's This Is It. Now, This Is It, when you hear this song full on, you know, from beginning to end, it is a complicated song, co-written by Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins. But the really fascinating thing about this song is what the song is about. So here's Kenny telling that story. The dedication is to my father, um, which is um, basically because of the, the song, This Is It. This Is It was written for him uh, lyrically. Michael McDonald and I wrote the tune, and then we were really stumped on what the song was about lyrically. Every time we sat down to write it, it kept coming out a love song, which is okay, but we've been trying to find other directions to take our lyrics, something more, perhaps more meaningful in one way or another. But with this one, we tried about two or three times, and then one day I had a, uh, uh, a fight with my dad, and it was about the fact that he was going into the hospital for a major surgery. Uh -huh. And... In his going into the hospital, he'd accepted the fact that he was going to die. And I hadn't yet been prepared to accept that. And I, I fought with him because it seemed to me that he could also just as easily have accepted the fact he was going to live and changed his diet and stopped smoking or whatever and, and got into a program that would increase his chances of survival. And uh, so we had this big fight one day, and we went around on it all day, and we talked about it. And he decided that he would t go on a program, and he would change his life in order to survive and the next day mike mcdonald and i got together and we started on the tune and we had two lines um uh, i've been wondering why and the, and the bridge line you think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be and then we knew immediately what the song was about and i told him about my the thing with my dad and we started writing it on that level Crazy, huh? That's a touching story. He, I love that. He I've gets never into heard that. A, he gets into a fight with his father about whether his father is going to live or die and writes lyrics about it. And I find that song, you know, it's it's poppy and it's you know really well produced, maybe maybe too well, but it's I don't know, I've always liked it. I've always liked the passion in it, and I think that's probably why now. But I didn't know about that until a few days ago when I heard that clip for the first time. I I really admire him for being able to do that because I, as a songwriter, I can tell you that sometimes you want to write about the most poignant and powerful moments in your in your life, but sometimes they're just too overwhelming to, to put them in a song. Mm -hmm. It's like writing a song about your child, for example. Well, how do you channel all the emotions that you feel for that child into one little three-and-a-half-minute song? Right. It's asking a lot. And also, how do you write it so that it doesn't sound sucky? Right? Like, it, Well, sucky's good. Well... <laughs> <laughs> but sucky sounds sucky, like and and it only works some of the time. Well, that's that's the craft is is you know to be able to say something that's real. Yes, take the risk of exposing yourself in the process. Hope that you touch somebody, right? And try not to be maudlin about right. it, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's a tough line to walk. Yeah. So when you do that, Christopher, as a songwriter, so you've got something that you really want to express. And so what do you do? Do you ruminate on it? Do you, do you, do you, you, know, do you sit in front of a, 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 of a laptop and, and go, how do I want to do this? Is it, do, you, do you spill your guts? Like, do you write as much as you can? Or do you try to think of a turn of phrase so that 
it starts something with you. Like, how do you write lyrics? Well, all those techniques are legit. And, 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 and any given day, you'll have a songwriter in here who will say yes to any one of those choices. For me, there's no laptop involved. It, it's more of the spill your guts thing. What I do is I just I get a blank piece of paper and I start writing. And I try to free associate. I don't judge what I'm doing. I don't say, oh, that's not cool, or I could tweak that, or I could make that better, or what rhymes with this. I just throw down as many of the raw ideas and feelings that I have on the subject on the page as quickly as possible so that the flow is not broken. And then come back later or maybe the next day and try to edit it into some kind of shape. Mm -hmm. And I know this is an impossible question to answer, but how long is that process? And it, does it just vary from song to song? Well, some songs, you know, we'll knock them out in a day. Mm -hmm. um, but that's kind of rare. I like to ruminate a little bit more. Some songs take a long time. Like, I don't know if you know the um, Amanda Marshall song that I wrote called Beautiful Goodbye. Mm -hmm. Yep. The lyrics to that song, I think they took me like three months to write. And it was partly because my, my collaborator, Dave Tyson, who wrote the music, played it for me. Yeah. And I was so blown away. I was intimidated by the music. Oh. And it took me a long, long time to kind of come up with a lyric that I thought matched the That beauty. was worthy. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. Wow. So. You know, um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the song Hallelujah. And uh, Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen were having lunch one day. And, <laughs> it sounds like a setup for a joke. I know, I know. <laughs> and Dylan tells... Leonard Cohen, how much he liked the song, asked him how long it took to, to write. And as we uh, talked about, there was 80 verses originally in Hallelujah. And so Cohen said, it took me a couple of years to write. And then Cohen was saying, I really like a song that you wrote called, I think it's called I and I. He said, I really like that song. How long did it take you to write that? Dylan said, oh, 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, but that's not a fair comparison. Let's look at no. Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Now, sure. How long did it take him to write that? Sure. It's crazy. And there's no right answer to that. And, of course, mm. your technique differs greatly from another songwriter's Absolutely. technique, right? Anytime. I'm Christopher Ward, along with Tom Jokic, and this is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the interview archive. And it's time for our favorite segment, or mine anyway, Christopher. I don't, I don't want to presume to speak for you, <laughs> but this is called When Rock Stars Attack. <laughs> And this, is, this clip is from 1981, our dear friend Meatloaf. Um, so we go back to 1981. This is just a very short clip of Meatloaf dealing with the criticism of his second album um, called Dead Ringers from 1981. Let's talk about this new album here. Shoot. Okay. First of all, I want to know how you feel about the mixed reaction it's gotten since its release. But well, it's, that's exactly what it should be. Yeah, Why? Well, because I would hate for the people to go, eh, I'd rather people go, boo or yay, because I can't stand it. You know, for, for every eight million records that Bad Outta Hell sold, there was eight million people that hated it. And, and, but that's the, that's the point, you know. I mean, you can't please everybody all the time. And, um, you know, the only person that I've got to please is myself, and I've also got to please the people who buy it. And uh, I have a feeling that the people who buy it, word of mouth, will carry through. Uh, because I believe that it's a very good record. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and I, I put a lot of blood and a lot of time into that record. And um, I respect that record. And when I do an album, I'm not interested in the commercial success. I'm in the artistic success of it. It's like you were talking about before. You know, people judge a record that I spent 13 months on in 15 minutes. 
That's not fair. That's not fair to any artist. You know, you take the pretenders. They say the pretenders, da 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 The pretenders didn't go in and not care about what they were doing. And, uh, you know, these critics, uh, most of the critics, I don't pay attention to critics, but let me tell you about critics. Critics are mostly frustrated artists, are people who uh, are have enormous ego trips and want to be more than what they are. And they are not, a, they're not, they're not a regular con consumer like yourself and I am and like the people that are listening to me now. I'm a consumer just like your audience. And I believe me, I'm going to give a record more chances to come alive. And to me, I buy everybody's record. I listen to every record that's put out just about. And there's some records I don't like, true. But I don't ever give up on them on the first listen because always somewhere in there, there's something to learn and there's something that is artistically good enough to, to know about. And there's somewhere in there, everybody who does something is trying their damnedest. And uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, the consumer should be the last one to make the judgment on it and no one else. Okay, there you go. So there's some uh, warmed over meatloaf from 1981 <laughs> oh, with a lot to say. You know, he's always had a very uh, strong opinion. He's always had a lot to say about critics because he's never been a uh, critical favorite. Yeah. But let's think about what he said. Mm -hmm. He put 13 months into that album and it's being judged after what he says is 15 minutes. Let's hope the critic listened to the whole album so that it's so that it's at least fair enough for a full, you know, 35-minute listen. But he makes a great point. And as much as, I, you know, there's a lot about Meatloaf that I, do, I don't particularly take to, I, res I respect that, you know, he does his thing and sometimes he gets a massive hit record out of it. But he makes a great point about critics and about how little they care about the effort that an artist puts into it. Yeah, it it sounded a bit like a fake news rant to me, I have to say. Sure. Um, he touts the audience as being, you know, the ultimate critic. And and yes, ultimately that is true. If people buy your records, you're going to continue to have a career regardless of how the press treats you. But I would venture to say that most audience people wouldn't even give him 15 minutes. That they're going to listen, you know, to one song, maybe the the single, mm -hmm. and if they like it, they'll go, "Oh, okay, I'm interested in hearing the rest of the record." Mm -hmm. Unless you're hardcore, right? You know, like every there are certain bands, for instance, now that still people will buy their whole album. You know, whether it's Adele or Coldplay or whatever. But most artists are living single to single, and I think Meatloaf may have been one of those artists. Mm -hmm. So if he got 15 minutes of patience from a critic or somebody in his audience, I'd say he'd have to count himself lucky. That wraps it up for another episode. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh. Talk to you next time.